welcome to the Worldonomics podcast, brought to you by the UQS Diversity Team. I'm Liam. I'm Bronwyn. I'm Jo. And I'm Maylise. And each week, we bring in a new guest to talk about the issues that matter. Okay. I'd like to welcome our guest today, Professor Richard Brown, who is here to talk to us about immigration. Did you want to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you very much. I'm Richard Brown. I'm Associate Professor in the School of Economics. I've been in Australia and at UQ for the last 29 years. And one of the things that I brought with me, I suppose, was my um, particular approach to the economic analysis of the impacts of international migration. And I was very pleased that very early in my arrival here, I had the opportunity to engage with other researchers in that area. So I actually got to hear your research about this topic in the class that you taught uh, the social issues of economics. So yes, economics that, of social issues. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I actually came into contact with you for this podcast. So for today, we thought it would be interesting to talk about some common immigration myths that people have. I know a lot of us hear like comments or statements made by people and they're not necessarily always supported by sound evidence or facts. So we thought it would be interesting to get your opinion on some of these uh, statements. So the first one that we've all heard is that immigrants are here to take our jobs. (laughs) Uh, I don't quite know what taking our jobs means, but I think I know what you're asking. But perhaps before I answer that, I want to stress that any attempt to do an analysis of migration policy and migration impacts, um, there's a methodological issue that we need to be clear about up front. And very often that's left implicit in political discourse and debate. And that is when you are evaluating or assessing any policy, it has to be in relation to some specified alternative, some counterfactual. And very often that isn't made explicit. So we don't really know what we're comparing the given situation with a given policy to. And so I think it's important that we clarify that. And the study, in terms of the impacts in Australia itself, that's not my area of expertise. My area of expertise is more in terms of the impacts on the source countries. In other words, the countries that the migrants come from. But I'm happy to talk about the impacts in Australia based on my reading of the available academic research material. And what I'm going to be presenting or arguing today is based very much on one particular study that I would highly recommend. It is a publication that was put out by the, um, it's called the Migration Council of Australia. It's an NGO based in Canberra. And they contracted a research group called Independent Economics, to undertake sort of modelling for them. And the report that is published, I think it was 2016, is entitled The Economic Impact of Migration. And I think I would recommend to your listeners that that would be something well worth getting hold of. It's freely available on the internet. Um, So this notion that immigrants are here to take our jobs is, I would say, clearly, no. That is, you know, you use the term myth. Of course, that's a myth. Um, In fact, most of the modelling will demonstrate clearly that international migration actually increases both labour force participation rates and employment rates, not only among migrants themselves, but among those who are 
Australian resident. And um, I think what's really important is that if we're talking about a with versus without scenario, without migration, we've got an aging population. So that means that the labor force participation rates and the level of unemployment um, will be decreasing over time, placing a heavier burden on the those who are employed in terms of taxes. So you would expect that without migration, the negative impacts of an aging population will be much greater than the scenario with migration. And that applies certainly to employment. Yeah. So would you say, like, do immigrants lower wages? Well, again, in general, no, but you have to be specific. What categories of migrants and what categories of labour are we talking about? And if we break the labour force into three, let's say the the highly skilled, um, the medium skilled and the unskilled, the evidence seems to demonstrate that because our migration policies are geared so much towards skilled and educated labour, and given that such a large part of the immigrant labour force are in that category, um, the, the modelling seems to indicate that it could have a negative impact on the wages of the highly skilled because so much of the additional labour is uh, skilled. But it also demonstrates that when it, the effect of the increased demand coming from the increased population with the migrants places an increased demand for the semi-skilled and the unskilled, and given that so few of the migrants could fill those jobs, um, there's an upward pressure on wages. So for the lower end, um, there's an upward pressure. For the top end, you can think of all the international students who are coming in, they're bringing with them their education and all the skilled migrants on the 457 visa or permanent visas, bringing with them those skills that wouldn't otherwise be available. That is likely to have a slight downward impact. And the estimate from the modelling is, you know, I think it was something around 3 to 5% lower than in comparison with the counterfactual. Whereas with the semi-skilled and the and the unskilled, it's more like ten to fifteen percent higher wages than otherwise. Okay. Another thing that I've heard. Um, so, if we were to relax immigration laws in Australia, would we see an influx in people <laughs> wanting to immigrate here? Look, I mean, Australia is such a beautiful country. Who wouldn't <laughs> want to come here? Apart from the, you know the job opportunities. But to be realistic, when we say um, if we were to relax immigration laws, I think what you're possibly already asking is if we were more liberal, uh, yes. but not not free movement of labour. Yes. I mean, yeah. I know that, 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 that one thing is perhaps worth noting is that the classical sort of free trade position is complete international in favour of liberalisation and free movement of goods, of finance, of investment. But when it comes to the international movement of labour, there's the elephant in the room because we have immigration controls. Yes. And that's kind of counter to the, you know, the mainstream neoclassical position on liberalisation. So there's a bit of an inconsistency there in that mainstream thought. But let's just go back. Realistically, no country is going to say we're going to open up borders to anybody who wants to come. And, and I would expect a flood of people, including, you know, some of my good friends who are suffering in the UK at the moment and elsewhere would love to be here. So, but let's be realistic. When we say relax, what we mean is more liberal. 
more yes. liberal, relaxing some of the restrictions. And for a long time, the Australian government was reluctant to make any exceptions to relax. Australia's migration policy previously was sort of totally committed to this um, non-discriminatory policy. In other words, not favouring any particular countries or any particular categories or whatever. But in fact, it came to realise that we are discriminatory because we were favouring people with, with English language skills, with other work skills and so on. And there's been a shift towards making more exceptions in the case of skilled workers. And one example would be the 457 visa, and we've got dozens of labour. That. So we've got, yes, there's a huge demand for those positions. Another area in which we have relaxed is in, um, in our local region. And that's something I'm going to be talking about more when we look at the impact on the source countries. But in the South Pacific, for example, um, there's a strong case for positive discrimination to liberalise the free movement of labour between the Pacific Islands and Australia, given the enormous contribution that the migrants make towards development back in their home countries through the remittances that we talk about in the next session. Yes. So in reality, we are liberalising, uh, being swamped. I don't think there's any, any fear of being swamped by migrants because of the policies that we have. Would I be in favour of more liberal policies? Probably yes. I don't see you know, limiting it just to certain categories and certain countries. We can probably think of broadening that. And that has already happened to some extent. I mean, what I was referring to was the seasonal worker scheme for agricultural labor, especially fruit pickers. And as you know, right now with COVID-19, there's an enormous shortage of agricultural labor. And here is a clear example of where once we've got that bubble with the Pacific Islands, they can fill that gap. And what I'm also hoping from a development point of view, that um, once we've got the bubble with the Pacific Islands, there'll be more opportunities for Pacific Islanders to come in under the 457 category. At the moment, the 457 category is filled primarily by migrants from other countries like Indonesia, Philippines, Korea, and so on. So, um, yeah, I'm not worried about being swamped. Ah, so does immigration leave the countries left behind with a shortage of qualified workers? You know, that's also an area which hasn't really been discussed appropriately in the media and in the public debate because of the misconception that a country has a given stock of skills and that the moment anybody leaves that country, the stock is being depleted. Yes. And the concept of brain drain. Now, that's based on the incorrect premise that in the absence of migration, you would have the same skill set, the same investment in training and human capital as you would have with migration. Now, let me give an example. If you go to practically any country in the world and you end up in hospital, the chances are that one of your nurses will be from the Philippines. The Philippines is exporting nurses right around the world. You open any newspaper in Manila and it'll be full of advertisements, training for nurses. Why? Because of international labor mobility. Without international labor mobility, there would not be those training opportunities and there wouldn't be so many nurses being trained. So it's correct that yes, they're ending up going abroad, but so many are being trained 
Some are leaving. Some decide not to leave or can't leave for whatever reason. And a lot of them come back, return migration, having achieved their aims and objectives in terms of how much they could earn abroad. So the irony is that at the moment, the Philippines, with migration and the exodus of thousands of nurses, domestically still has more nurses per head of population than the UK has. So that's the analysis of brain drain. Well, in fact, this is brain drain with brain gain. There's gain because of the incentive that migration provides for investment in that human capital that would not otherwise have occurred. And again, we come back to the methodology. We're comparing the with migration scenario with a counterfactual. And all too often that isn't properly spelt out. Having said that, there will be some areas in which I would be very concerned. And the obvious example is doctors, medical yes. the doctors, because countries can invest a huge amount in, in training their local doctors only to find that they can go abroad to Australia or the UK or whatever. So you would um, say that the brain drain theory applies to certain professions? It does. But then if we also think of the health sector on an international scale, um, let's say here in Australia, we'll be importing doctors from Fiji, but then Fiji will be importing doctors from Africa and Australia will be exporting a lot of doctors to the US. And so it's kind of, if you put together a global flows of doctors, you can see it's, <laughs> I mean, we're exporting doctors and we're importing them. Yeah. And I think that's true of almost any country. So you really need to look at it in terms of a global flow. But having said that, I would always support any policy that would kind of, if, you know, if a doctor is being trained in a country at that country's expense and then ends up migrating, I would favour some way in which that country could be compensated. So maybe if Australia is importing doctors from low-income countries in the South Pacific, we should acknowledge that and contribute back to those countries additional income to support the training of further doctors or put certain policies in place that might compel those doctors to return home after so many years. So they could think of their stay in Australia as being temporary, uh, acquiring additional skills, working in a different health sector environment with the understanding that they return. So maybe a temporary visa. So I wouldn't be opposed to that. But I do think that the brain drain argument in general has been exaggerated because of the false premise that there is a given stock and not taking into account the incentive that migration offers to acquire additional skills. A big myth that I've actually heard is that immigrants don't pay taxes and that they steal our <laughs> welfare payments or our Centrelink payments. Yeah, well... <laughs> Look, I mean, there's been a lot of modelling on this. OECD has done a lot of work. That study that I referred to earlier, the economic impact of migration, it shows exactly the opposite. You know, as I said earlier, just think about it. The, you know, the migrants coming in are increasing our labour force participation. They're increasing our employment. Yes. They're increasing their contribution to the economy more than their contribution to population. So GDP and tax income going to government is increasing by more than the increase in population. Yes. And given also that the focus is primarily on the younger skilled migrants, and don't forget all the international students coming in are migrants, and they end up on visas uh, as 
skilled workers. They are bringing with them education already acquired back home. The 457 visa migrants, the skilled workers are bringing with them. So um, just to follow up a bit, they're certainly not a drain on our education. They're contributing to our education. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, they're adding to our human capital stock. And given that they are more skilled on average than the Australian resident population, uh, they're increasing the um, stock. Now, given also that they're primarily at the younger end of the age of the population spectrum, they're not placing as much demand on aged care as the domestic fee residents. And remember, we are comparing this with a situation of no migration where the population would be aging and the demands on the health system would be increasing. However, because a lot of migrants are concentrated in particular cities like Sydney, they potentially putting an excessive demand on the health systems and education systems in particular cities. But again, policy has been quite successful in recent years in providing incentives for migrants to move out into the regional and rural areas. So taking the demand away from the infrastructure in the city. So as a whole, you would say that they don't necessarily put pressure on our education and healthcare systems? No, but certain categories may be, but they're very small part of the total. You've got like family reunion where a migrant becomes an Australian citizen and is allowed to bring their elderly parents into the country, yes. But that is such a small percentage of the total that I don't think that we can conclude that. And certainly in terms of uh, the modelling that this and other studies, including Productivity Commission did a study, um, doesn't support the argument, either from a fiscal tax contribution point of view or from an education and health system point of view in general. But of course, we'd, we'd always find examples, you know, and the New South Wales government, I think, has in recent past raised that issue about too many migrants coming into Sydney. Yes. Well, that was the last immigration myth that I had. Thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Um, I hope we've been able to shed some light on this topic for our listeners. Um, yeah, so thank you for coming on. Thanks for listening to the podcast this week. We hope you found this episode interesting. See you again next week.